Wayne Sumner is a retired philosophy professor. A few years ago, he was cleaning out his basement. Right. So Heather and I decided to do some decluttering of our basement. and This stuff was in a cardboard box down there, and I really had forgotten that it ever existed. And so we pull it out, and we're, we're trying to get rid of stuff, right? That's the whole point of this. So I actually pulled out the material and very quickly pawed through it and decided, ah, this stuff can go. So I actually took the box out to our back deck and tossed its contents into our blue bin for disposal on the next day that the recycling stuff was to be collected. And then I stood there and looked in at it and thought, maybe not. So then I had to reach in and claw it all out of there again and stick it back in the box. In the box was a bunch of archival material from a crime that happened near Duff, Saskatchewan in 1928, where Wayne's father grew up. When his father retired in the 1960s, he got into amateur history and started collecting information about the crime. Um, and then he died suddenly. Um, and by suddenly, I mean very suddenly. He just was you know, walking across the kitchen floor and dropped dead um, in December of 1982. And I then inherited all of his research materials, a big box full of paper. Um, and I knew that the materials were connected to this crime. And I kind of resolved, or may even have semi-promised his widow, my stepmother, because my parents separated when I was quite young, so this was his second wife. I might even have semi-promised her that someday I would try to finish his work, or at least go back to it. Um, but what I did was to immediately forget about it. Um, and um, I stashed this box of paper um, in our basement. And it was only maybe two years ago now that my wife and I decided we needed to do some decluttering. And I rediscovered this box of stuff. So in the 1920s, most of the farming in Saskatchewan was still done with horses. And this one farmer, whose name was George Eady, was known for having excellent horses. He lived by himself, but the farms were small, so his neighbors would see him most days. So George was seen plowing in his field on the afternoon and early evening of May the 1st. And from May the 2nd on, for the next few days, he had vanished. Nobody knew where he was. And... Um, his neighbors who used to um, you know, rely on, on his regularity began to get concerned. And about a week later, um, they contacted the, the local um, Saskatchewan police force in the nearby town of Melville, um, notifying them that this guy had disappeared. Nobody knew where he was, but also that somebody had been seen driving his horses and his wagon on a road in the area. So this was sufficient for one of the constables in that police detachment in Melville to come out the next day. So he was notified on May the 7th and um, arrived on the scene on May the 8th and uh, was accompanied by one of the, by the fellow that had seen 
George Eady's horse and horses and wagon on the road being driven by somebody else and started to sort of drive around the area to see what he could find and encountered that same team of horses and wagon being driven by a local guy whose name was Mike Hack. Hack was a farm laborer who worked for different farmers in the area. And so they stopped this guy and began to ask him a number of questions, including how did you come by this man's wagon and horses? Whereupon um, Hack produced receipts for the purchase of these goods and said that he had bought them from Edie um, a couple of weeks earlier, but the receipts were pretty obvious forgeries. Wayne has photos of the receipts. And to give you a sense of the quality of the forgery, the receipt was supposed to be made by George Edie, but George Edie's name was misspelled. So the constable asks Mike Hack to write down the words from the receipt, and the writing's obviously the same. So um, the police constables uh, tell Hack to park his horses and wagon in the nearby town to get in their car, and they're going to drive to this town to see if George Edie is there. Along the way, they pass the farm that Edie had last been seen in, past Edie's farm. So they decide to stop in and see what they can find. And they're looking around, um, and the one of the police constables happens to step onto Edie's manure pile, which is located some distance from his barn, and steps on something that gives out a squishing noise and uh, they start to uncover the manure and straw and they find the body of George Eady in the manure pile. So now they have a murder case on their hands. The constable notifies the local pathologist who comes to the farm that day, performs an autopsy, and finds that the cause of death was several blows to the head from a blunt instrument. Wayne's father grew up in the area, but Wayne has other ties to the case. The magistrate who organized the coroner's inquest and then presided over the preliminary inquiry that happened later in the month was my great-grandfather. It was my father's mother's father. And one of the members of the coroner's, coroner's jury was my grandfather, my father's father. So there was a preliminary inquiry later that month where the prosecutors laid out the evidence of the crime so the magistrate could decide if there was enough to go to trial. Um, there were no witnesses to the crime, and there was no forensic evidence connecting him to it either. No blood in his clothes, no blood on any um, weapon of his. He, he, um, Hack was often seen in the area. He was an itinerant farm laborer working for uh, various farmers in the area. He was often seen moving around the area carrying a rifle, but there was no trace of blood on the um, butt of that rifle, which was the likely uh, murder weapon. The local magistrate decided there was enough evidence for a trial that took place five months later. Um, the only, the main difference between the preliminary inquiry and the actual trial was that Mike Hack was now being represented by um, a very well-known, very prominent, and very successful lawyer from Regina, whose name was Percy Anderson. Percy Anderson had a glittering career. He was at King's Council. He had argued 
um, frequently before the Saskatchewan um, Court of Appeal. And he ended up being, he had been elected to the Saskatchewan, or I think later was elected to the Saskatchewan Legislative Assembly, and later appointed to the bench. So um, this was not some ordinary small-town lawyer. Mike Hack had, had very distinguished legal representation. The prosecution mounted a strong case, calling 35 witnesses, including the pathologist and a handwriting expert. But Anderson phoned in the defense, throwing theories against the wall to see if anything would stick. At one point, to try to discredit the pathologist's report, Anderson suggested that one of Edie's horses might have killed Edie, to which the judge remarked that the horse probably didn't bury him too. None of this really went anywhere. But the, the truly surprising thing, and this is a murder trial. Remember, this is a murder trial in 1928 when the mandatory penalty for conviction for murder was the death penalty. There weren't categories of murder back then. There was no such thing as second-degree murder. Um, that, wasn't, that was introduced 30, 40 years later. So if you're convicted of murder, you are sentenced to death. It's automatic. So there's a lot at stake for the accused in a murder trial in 1928. Despite that fact, the most surprising thing about the trial was that Percy Anderson called no witnesses whatever on behalf of Mike Hack. There was no defense, basically no defense, except for his cross-examination of those prosecution witnesses. The jury took about an hour and a half to convict him. Despite having only circumstantial evidence, it wasn't a tough case. Clearly, Mike Hack killed George Eady. The jury was quite correct, in my opinion, um, to convict him on the basis of the evidence presented at trial. This isn't the kind of story where we use DNA records or telegraph data or something like that to prove Hack's innocence. Wayne and his father didn't uncover anything to show that Hack didn't do it. This is not a case like that, but I still think it's a wrongful conviction and I still think it's a miscarriage of justice. Um, and here's why. The facts about Mike Hack that I haven't touched on yet, or the relevant facts, are twofold. First of all, there is very good reason to believe that he had a very significant intellectual disability, that he basically had the mind of a child. The overwhelming view of him on the part of those who knew him was that he was, quote, simple. So I, I take that to mean profoundly intellectually impaired, profoundly intellectually disabled. I, I don't know exactly what the diagnosis would have been. He was never given an IQ test, so we don't know what the result of that might have been. So that's one thing. Also, at the age of 21, he had a bout of mumps as a result of which he became completely deaf. So now we've got a defendant at the trial who has two disabilities, two serious disabilities, deafness on the one hand and an intellectual disability on the other. The intellectual disability is the main factor, but Hack's deafness raises additional questions about the fairness of the trial. It complicated the trial because all of the evidence being given by the various witnesses had to be taken down in writing um, and typed up and shown to him um, because otherwise, you know, the, the basic idea of a fair trial is you have the right to hear your accusers. Uh, if you can't hear them, then he has to read them. 
And so the trial was run with relays, basically of stenographers, taking down all of the testimony and typing it up and showing it to him. And this is for a man who didn't make it past second grade. Um, so this slowed down the trial. The trial only occupied three days, even, even at that pace. But uh, it complicated the, the trial in order for him to have adequate um, access to the um, evidence that was being given. I don't think myself it had any bearing on his degree of responsibility. I think that was entirely, I think that has to be entirely um, attributed to his intellectual disability. It's the intellectual disability that's really the basis for Wayne's interest in the case, because although there's really no doubt that Hack killed Edie, his disability didn't get the attention it should have. The implication of that is that Percy Anderson, his defense counsel, could have mounted a defense of insanity. But the way in which the, the provision in the criminal code was worded, in order to qualify for an insanity defense, you either had to have a disease of the mind, that was the phrase, um, or you had to suffer from, quote, natural imbecility, end quote, which I take to cover the category of an intellectual, serious intellectual uh, impairment. It seems to me now that Mike Hack was a very good fit for the category of natural impairment and therefore a good fit for an insanity defense. What needed to be shown additionally, and again, this hasn't really changed very much over the decades since then, was that whether it's a disease of the mind or natural imbecility you're suffering from, it had to render you incapable of knowing the nature and quality of your act, namely incapable of knowing what you're doing, or of knowing that it was wrong. And I don't think there's any doubt that Mike Hack knew what he was doing when he was, as I am assuming, clubbing George Eadie on the head to get his horses and wagon. But I seriously doubt that he understood that it was wrong. I don't think he had sufficient mentality to understand that what he was doing was wrong. Anderson could have appealed before the case went to trial, arguing that Hack was unfit to stand trial, or he could have used the defense at trial. It wouldn't be unreasonable for a jury to find that Mike Hack was suffering from a mental condition that absolved him of responsibility for the crime. In which case, if he's found unfit to stand trial, there's no trial. He's not guilty of or acquitted of anything. If it's an insanity defense at the trial, then if the jury finds in his favor, he is acquitted of the offense of the charge. In either case, he doesn't go free. He'll be committed to a mental institution. Anderson didn't argue this before the trial or during it, so the jury convicted Hack of murder. But Anderson was aware of the strategy. Before a person was hanged, the case was reviewed by the governor general. Anderson and his co-counsel each wrote a letter explaining that Hack was mentally unfit. And there was even a petition circulated in the area signed by over 80 residents, all attesting that he was mentally disabled and should be in an institution basically, all trying to save him from being hanged. What he did not do, either at the trial stage 
or at the clemency stage was to arrange for Mike to be examined by a psychiatrist and in particular to have a IQ tested to arrange expert evidence that he fit into this category of natural imbecility that his, intel his, his intelligence was sufficiently impaired. I've already indicated why I think that the conviction was wrongful because it was not based on relevant evidence about the defendant's mental condition. And so why that was uh, a miscarriage of justice. But I think the clemency process was a further miscarriage of justice because um, his defense counsel could have and should have arranged for expert evidence to be adduced as to his mental condition. Had that been done, he might well have had his sentence commuted. Hack was evaluated by a psychiatrist for the prosecution, but the report makes it clear that he was looking for evidence of delusions or psychosis, of traditional insanity. He doesn't say anything about Hack's intellectual disability. So not only did the judge and jury not hear anything about Hack's disability, a psychiatrist for the prosecution testified that Hack was fit to stand trial, even though that probably wasn't the case. The trial was at the latter part of October. Now we're into early January. The scheduled date for Mike Hack's hanging is January the 18th. The order in council denying clemency comes through on January the 15th, and very early in the morning of the 18th, he is hanged, and his body is then buried in an unmarked grave in the cemetery in Regina. I should mention that Saskatchewan did not have a formal legal aid program until sometime in the 1960s. The process before that was for lawyers either to volunteer to defend persons accused of serious crimes like murder, or for them to be assigned to the case either by the trial judge or by the provincial attorney general. Percy Anderson, as I mentioned, was a high-profile lawyer at a law firm in Regina. Mike Hack's family were farmers in rural Saskatchewan. They certainly did not have the means, and Hack himself definitively didn't have the means, he didn't have any money to hire Percy Anderson. So I, I can only speculate about this. I don't think that Anderson volunteered to uh, represent Mike Hack in this case. I think he was assigned to it probably by the provincial attorney general who you know, took the entirely reasonable position that given what's on the line for a defendant in a murder case, he deserved you know, um, competent representation. He didn't get competent representation because I don't think that Percy Anderson ever bothered to give it to him. And I think that Mike Hack was hanged largely because he was poor and rural and insignificant. He didn't matter, didn't matter enough to anybody, not to the trial judge, not to the prosecutor, but especially not to his own defense counsel to take the trouble to ensure that he didn't meet that 
fate. So I think there are lessons in here about how the justice system operates for defendants who don't matter, don't matter to anybody, um, for whom no one is willing to make the effort to actually give them effective representation. And that's probably still a feature of our criminal justice system, though I do hope it's better now than it was then. But that, that I think, is what um, accounted for Mike Hack's fate as much as anything else. And that's also part of what interests me about this case. that's the show. Thanks to Wayne Sumner for speaking with me. Wayne has written a book about this case called Prairie Justice. It's set to be published in the next year. Value Judgments is produced by me, Eric Matheson. If you like the show, please tell your friends and subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify. And if you really like the show, you can become a paid subscriber at valuejudgments.substack.com. Thanks for listening.